Um, my name is Margaret Nyamumbo. I'm the founder of Kahawa 1893, uh, which is a coffee company um, that supports women farmers in Kenya. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Maggie. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about that name, 1893. What happened in that year? So Kahawa means coffee coffee in Swahili um, and 1893 is the year that coffee was first grown in Kenya so the reason that name means a lot to me is it continues a tradition of growing excellent coffee um, so Kenyan coffee is actually um, the best coffee in the world objectively okay so shots fired <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so the folks in your neighboring uh, Ethiopia who would take great exception to that claim but yeah, maybe let's use this as an opportunity to school people who aren't aware of Kenya's place in the, in the world of coffee. And, and then, yeah, back your claim up. Yeah, so there's actually um, a, a whole international coffee review that every year ranks coffees based on country of origin. And so Kenya is constantly number one. Ethiopia is number two. So East Africa is a big... Uh, is a big uh, giant in terms of um, the desired coffees coming out of the region, and they do very well, you know, compared to to other regions. Oh, okay. So that's that's fair. Does Kenya have a strong coffee drinking culture, or is it really just a uh, and sort of agricultural or growing culture that exists currently? Would you say? Um, so actually, um, it's interesting. I brought a friend back with me to Kenya, and they were surprised that. Kenyans generally don't drink coffee. It's something that's new. Um, so Kenya has a coffee culture, because uh, sorry, as a tea culture, because tea is like our largest export. And we grew up, my generation grew up on tea because coffee is too valuable for locals to drink. So it's expensive. So it was basically for, it, it, it's an expensive product. So when you go to a cafe, it's an expensive endeavor. But my grandparents actually make their own coffee. So my grand, my grandmother makes coffee and they grew up on a coffee culture and then we grew up on a tea culture and the coffee culture is now starting to come back uh, we're having more cafes um, around Nairobi and kind of moving into the smaller towns as well so we're hoping to that's actually one sector that we hope that we can essentially like bring that coffee culture back to life correct me if I'm wrong about it's probably key to get that culture going if we're to see progress in Kenya participating more meaningfully in the coffee industry beyond just growing the stuff, right? I mean, yes and no. So when I think about coffee in general, and we think about the economics of coffee growing, so one of the things that's very interesting about coffee right now is there's actually a crisis. So coffee prices are below cost of production. Um, so almost all coffee farmers, and this is including Brazilian coffee farmers that have mechanized uh, production. The current coffee prices are below their cost of production. Now compare that to the manual producer in Kenya. And Kenya grows a very specific type of coffee that's actually harder to grow. So it's a more expensive type of coffee to grow. Um, and so some of the things that I think about are if farmers are not getting paid for what they're producing, should they really still be producing coffee? Um, and so that's part of my conflict with, with kind of thinking about bringing a coffee culture and then what if we bring the coffee culture and then in a few years we can't maintain this sort of like subsidi basically subsidizing big coffee over time then now we have this culture and we've brought an expensive culture that we have to maintain and so where does the culture for not paying farmers what they should be paid where is the root for that 
That's a very uh, good question. I have a very nerdy answer. So coffee, historically, uh, when it was mass produced in Brazil, relied a lot on slave labor. So we had a lot of slave labor coming from you know Africa and Asia into Brazil to produce coffee. So the coffee, the global coffee trade got so used to free labor that that's actually why Brazil was the last country in the in the world to end slavery because of the over-reliance on slave labor. And then when slave slavery was outlawed in 1888 in Brazil, coffee collapsed. So they had to find new sources of labor. And so that's we had the shift to the native countries. So instead of bringing people out of Africa to provide slave labor in Brazil, what if we kind of have them actually produce that free labor in their own country? So what we, we saw is, uh, you know, like, for instance, in Kenya, we saw the British come in um, and get plantations and essentially sanction free labor to produce coffee. And so I think historically we've seen the coffee industry over-rely on free labor and over time kind of push that burden of producing free labor on the marginalized communities. And so where we are right now, because racial freedoms have evolved, we're left with one marginalized group of people, which is women, who still provide free labor because of cultural elements. And so that's actually what sustains prices that are below cost of production, because now we have men who are too proud to work without getting paid, being able to deploy their, their wives, the women in their household to provide free labor. Um, and so a good example is, of that is you give the man of the household a token $1 and have them deploy their wives' labor worth $5. They like that instant uh, satisfaction, but they don't realize that they're deploying $5 worth of labor on behalf of the women. I think that's the concept what we're seeing, women really providing all of the labor in farms and going unpaid. And that's part of the reason why I was attracted to this sector because I've seen it firsthand. So my mom has been providing this labor to the industry for a long time and I was attracted to it because I felt like there was a way that we can kind of start to think about how do we get this women paid. You know, now that you mention it, um, I remember growing up with social studies. Social studies was a, uh, was a subject in our schools. Um, was it a subject in your school too? Uh, yes, it was. And I remember there were pictures of, it was tea farmers, because tea is grown in Zimbabwe as well. Um, and it was pictures of tea harvesters. It was all these pictures of women. And I don't know if that is significant or not, but I'm starting to wonder if this might not be an endemic issue even in, in the tea industry. I don't know. Oh, it is, actually. It's, a, it's the same uh, exact. And I think the tea industry doesn't get as much kind of light in, in, into this aspect. It's not as clear in the tea industry because so the tea industry in Kenya is still plantation-based, so it's still owned by multinationals. Um, and so they, the way that they manage that labor is not very clear versus in the coffee industry because it's smallholder mostly owned, it's easier to see that dynamic at the family level. But in the tea industry still, when you observe who's working, it is women that are working. So let's dial back to the point where you're having a fairly comfortable, successful career in New York City. Or perhaps take us further back in your personal origin story to explain some of the things that have set you up to be able to engage with the issues the way you do, some of the skills you've gleaned in the financial services industry, and then maybe explain why you've positioned yourself in San Francisco 
to take on what has to be one of the most fiercely guarded FMCG industries of our day? Good question. So I actually, I grew up in Kenya uh, and I grew up on a coffee farm. So my grandfather was one of the first Kenyans to, to grow coffee. So another background here is in Kenya, only the British were allowed to grow coffee. So um, the natives were not allowed to grow coffee. They could only provide labor. So the natives had to fight for a long time to actually be allowed to grow coffee. And side note, actually, so my grandfather still plants coffee up to this this day. So he actually has seedlings. And when I asked him the other day, it's like, why do you still plant coffee when you've never made money from coffee? And I think to him, it's a personal struggle because he fought for the right to grow coffee. And even if he doesn't make money, to him it's a sign of freedom that I was able to finally grow coffee. So that's a kind of an, another interesting perspective of why uh, farmers still grow coffee even when they don't make money out of it. And so I grew up um, you know, on a coffee farm, seeing coffee every day, uh, and then I moved to the U.S. for college. So you know, going from a tea culture to a coffee culture. And after graduation, actually I worked in consulting and then went to work at the World Bank, which was the beginning of my starting to understand the agro supply chain. So actually my role at the World Bank was looking at competitiveness of our value chains in Africa and how can we compete against Asia or other countries. Like what, what really is our competitive advantage? And so because Kenya has coffee and tea as the main agro products kind of uh, in my role I was able to get a very interesting perspective on what's happening there and then I went on to business school so I went to Harvard for my MBA um, and then after Harvard I went to Wall Street to work in investment banking and so there I got to actually work on retail and consumer companies and I was an, in an interesting role because I got to see retail so retail is I was actually looking at distressed debt looking at retail which is in distress and my kind of evaluating that sector and kind of seeing what's going on was an interesting window um, and I'll, I'll kind of tell you a bit more about it um, I'm not sure if I'll, I'll go down a tunnel uh, but bring me back if I get lost <laughs> just keep going so please feel free yeah it's a side note so the companies that are collapsing in retail are owned by private equity and so private equity has a very interesting model, uh, which is you acquire a company and then you increase efficiencies, either by you know, firing people or reducing cost of goods sold. And then when I looked over at coffee, I realized that the largest coffee company was actually a private equity company that owns a ton of brands. And, so, and I was like, actually, coffee is the perfect private equity investment because you only have one product. And if you can push the cost of that product to zero you win. And I was like, and because coffee farmers have no power, that's an easy thing to do. And in essence, that's what's happened. Because what happened is the whole culture of payment. So farmers have been pushed to like a 360-day credit model. So the, because the private equity was pushing for efficiency, so we had essentially farmers having to wait up to a year to get paid. And so uh, Big Coffee was borrowing money from farmers. So the farmers were essentially financing the, the, this massive PE. Yes, uh, which is really interesting. And, and, and the problem with that is because of benchmarks, as soon as one company does it, it becomes the standard. And now that's the standard in the industry uh, of farmers really waiting either really long to get paid or taking discounts to get paid sooner. 
Um, so that's an interesting. Anyway, side note. So I saw that in the when I saw that in the coffee industry, I thought that was interesting. But that's not how I actually got into the into coffee. Um, so I was approaching 30 in my time on Wall Street, and I had always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. By the time I was 30, I wanted to like build something. One weekend, I went to uh, be part of a competition for a social enterprise competition, and you had to come up with a business idea. And so I thought about, oh, what if we come up with a coffee social enterprise, so coffee that supports farmers? And so during that weekend, as I spent more time thinking about it, I was like, this is actually pretty cool. So I started uh, meeting coffee people in New York, and I got a mentor who showed me the ropes in coffee. They showed me how to think about quality, how to taste coffee. And he told me that, oh, my God, Kenyan coffee is the best. Like, we're looking for it. Do you have some? Like, it's so distinctive. So I learned all the little nitty tricks about coffee and then realizing that there was so much value. So the coffee, the specialty coffee industry uh, had grown in value. So it actually had has outpaced commodity coffee. Um, and so there's huge demand for specialty coffee, high prices, M&A going on. But farmers, like when I asked my mom, she hadn't been paid like six months later and she was still getting prices that she got like way back. So farmers right now, in Kenya are getting paid prices they got paid in 1960s, by the way, just so you know. Um, and not just Kenyan farmers, but all farmers. The current prices are basically comparable to prices in the 60s. And I felt like there was a disconnect between what consumers were willing to pay for ethically produced products and the reality of farmers on the ground. I felt like there was an opportunity there to bridge that gap and build a supply chain that could support farmers. And so you've decided to start with the brand. Tell me why that was an important strategic move. You're looking to solve for a really big problem. And on the surface of it, you're just another coffee brand trying to be cool in the streets of San Francisco and perhaps other sort of affluent um, cities of the world where coffee is the toast of the town, which is a random uh, turn of phrase to use with regards to coffee. But, but you understand what I mean. Why start with a brand? to solve for the supply chain problem and then tell me what the roadmap to dismantling the status quo tell me what that looks like okay cool um so the reason we started with our brand um kahawa 1893 was i just really wanted to understand the industry and i felt like to understand the industry you have to be interacting with the consumer so i needed a brand that i could talk to the consumer about what we're trying to do get feedback and for me that was a huge learning lesson and to have people validate um, what I was thinking and so that's an important part of the process because you know a lot of the issue with the commodity markets is when you're in the middle and you don't have access to the end of the channel and a lot of the value in coffee a lot of it is generated closer to the consumer so it was important for me to understand what value is being created there and then start to work backwards to where that whole value chain um, starts. And what was the other question? (laughs) So I'm going to riff on what you've just said by asking another question, which is maybe what are the two biggest insights you've discovered about what you've just articulated as where the biggest value is, I suppose, created or extracted in this industry? What are the two perhaps most important insights that you've uncovered as you've gone about doing this? Okay, yeah. I mean, I think for me, the most important thing was uh, that quality is a subjective thing. So in, in, in coffee, when we talk about quality, it's a moving target. So kind of the 
prevailing wisdom in specialty coffee right now is, you know, farmers, if you can only produce better quality coffee, we can pay better. But then a farmer moves to that next level and then, then they find that the quality tier has moved to the next level. So it's a moving target and uh, taste and trends change. Um, so that, that was one big insight. And also kind of what consumers think is good and what the connoisseurs think is good. There's a little bit of a divergence there where I felt like consumers were not as nerdy as what I had expected, were not as knowledgeable on the different types of coffee and they enjoyed a delicious cup of coffee. Uh, so that was an interesting insight for me because when I first got in, I was super nerdy about everything. I was super nerdy. And then what I realized is consumers just want a delicious cup of coffee. They want to know that, you know, it's coming from a good place. The farmer was well compensated. Um, you know, it was produced in a sustainable way. So I think just understanding that at the very basic level, people are looking for a delicious cup of coffee. And they want a good story with it. For me, that was interesting for me to know because, I mean, similar to the wine industry, right? If you give someone like a $20 bottle of wine or a $50 bottle of wine or a $200 bottle of wine, a regular person may not be able to tell, <laughs> but, you know, someone in the industry may be able to tell and the pricing works differently. So for me, that was important because it, it informs the design of, our, of kind of what we're going to be rolling out in the future. So then back to the second half of the question I asked before that, which was, what's the backwards play? Walk me through the, the play from you've created the brand. It's a little more than market research because it's, you're clearly playing at where you know, the money's made within the industry and you're repping people who haven't been repped before. So you're, you're contributing to the narrative. You are, you're doing all this at the same time, but... Talk me through how you solve for the supply chain issues, right? One of the things I said was it's hard for people to know if the coffee they're drinking has been produced in a sustainable environment or has been, you know, the farmer has been paid a fair wage. And like, what, what is a fair price? That's another thing I discovered is consumers don't know what the fair price is because they remember they can't taste the, you know, they can't say, is this like a $1 coffee or $5 coffee? Like, they can't tell. And like, they, even if you pay five dollars to a farmer it could still be like a lower price than the value of the coffee right and so the, the best way to think about what we're doing is we're disrupting fair trade uh, and not because fair trade is a bad thing but because we're making it better <laughs> in a sense so when you think about fair trade um, it's one of those stamps that's become known for for people that want to make sure that the food was produced uh, in the right way and the farmer was paid and so I feel better paying a premium for that. And so the way we want to disrupt that is because actually the farmers that I work with can't afford to be part of the fair trade label. Um, side note, you need to be a middle class farmer to afford to be part of the fair trade because of all the processes and regulations. So the, the farmers I work with are too poor to be part of the fair trade. <laughs> so I was thinking, what's an, an about way of getting to the same point? And I was thinking... What if you could send your premium directly to the farmer? So what if you could tip the farmer? Um, and so thinking we have a QR code on a bag, you scan it as a consumer, you like the coffee, and you're like, okay, I want to send my premium directly. And so that's really what we're working towards. One of the ways that I think we can do that efficiently is using blockchain. Um, and there's something that we can do without blockchain, but blockchain allows us transparency because we want to be transparent. 
with consumers about what they're drinking. Um, and so with if, if the payment goes through the blockchain platform, you as a consumer can see your tip going directly into the farmer's wallet. And then on the supply chain side, we're using the blockchain ledger to record the journey of the coffee from farm to cup so that we're able to link the coffee to a specific consumer. So that's how we think that in the future, fair trade would work um, on a larger scale to include the farmers that need it the most, that can't afford to be part of it right now. So what does this look like at scale? So our current model um, is very simple. So it's a traditional, um, you know, you buy our coffee and we give a percentage of our profits. So right now we're doing 25% of our profits to support women. And this was something that we created as a go around because the general setup of a coffee family is it's an annual crop. You get one payment a year. And because the man owns the land, so in Kenya, I think 99% of the land is owned by men. When the payments come, the man takes them. And the men don't always share with the family. They'll probably go drinking and then like, it's hard to invest that money into the family. And then so the women who basically spent a whole year on the farm don't have anything. And the way that they support themselves currently is they have this micro lending group that they've set together. It's called table banking. So about 10 to 30 women will come together and because they don't have access to credit because they don't have any assets no one will lend to them so they come they band together into groups of 10 to 30 and they each you know give a dollar two dollars um then circulate that around as source of credit for their members and so for me when i was thinking about a system that puts money in the hands of women but without disrupting that family structure i thought that uh, you know getting the profits from selling our roasted coffee, which is um, kind of where a lot of the value is created or a lot of that value is uh, captured, and not necessarily created, but captured, um, and then giving to that women. And so the, the women's fund now, they used to have, you know, $50 in that basket. Now they have $500. They have $1,000. And that's how they support themselves through small businesses. So they go to the market to sell their vegetables, clothes, and all sorts of things. Um, and I was actually back home in December and I met this women um, and they were so excited and like just to see me and they were dancing, telling me stories of how like a loan of $30, $50 has transformed their lives. So for me, that was a very direct way of adding fuel to a fire that already existed. Um, so that was really the beginning and that's our current model. And that's a model that our consumers or our customers really like and identify with. Um, so I think the next step for us is to have people kind of tip into that jar so they can tip direct. So instead of us selling and then doing a percent, super easy for us to say, actually, you can just tip directly into that women's fund. And we've had corporations as well. So like Chan Zuckerberg, uh, when they drink our coffee, they donate directly to that fund and match employee donations. So having that also as part of CSR for organizations that want to do that at scale, that's kind of the next level. And then after that is being able to do, to do the one-on-one where we can tell you this coffee came from Farmer X and then you can tip Farmer X directly. Do you slowly but surely start to rest away the sort of stranglehold the larger players have on, on the farmers who they've come to rely on to supply them? 
or do you see the work you're doing forcing them to reevaluate their models or what they're willing to pay? Um, we we actually open to collaboration because it's a huge field, and you know people should be doing all sorts of things. But we see our solution as scalable, right? Because this data already exists in the market, and it's ideally now being able to leverage consumers as part of an active, I guess, making consumers. Um, closer to producers and this is something that can be done at scale we already know where the coffee is coming from so we just need it to be digitally recorded and then we just need to be able to have a way to get that money back so in kenya which is our our case uh, our first place because we have mpesa so it's an easy way for us to plug into mpesa because farmers already have mobile wallets so in other countries where farmers don't have mobile wallets is actually where i think that you know, digital currencies could be an interesting introduction uh, into that space. And if they produce, once you have an ecosystem of a currency on the ground, then you can actually start to bring these people into into the financial system. So, like, let's say now we know, like, Mary produces 100 pounds of coffee. We have those records. And now she can actually go to a bank and get credit. Right now, we don't have those records. And Mary cannot get credit. So at scale, this is something that you should be able to go into a Starbucks and on your receipt, you're able to tip the farmer, pretty much. Like the way we do right now, where we tip the barista, you should be able to have an option to tip the farmer. So it's scalable. From So we just introduce it and teach consume, consumers how to do it, but it's something that should be at scale everywhere. You referenced the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, but I, I heard Twitter is buying your coffee as well? Um, yeah, yeah. So for Black History Month, uh, we uh, partnered with Twitter um, to, to serve our coffee at their facilities, um, the Twitter headquarters. And so that that was a really good gesture for us. Um, so we're doing Airbnb from next month as well. So we're hoping to have more corporate partnerships as well, especially companies that you know care about um, supporting women. And as we know, you know the gender pay gap is a big issue right now and I think there are other ways um, to close that gap outside of HR. So which brings me to my next question which is how on earth, you know, are you based in San Francisco? It has to be one of the more you know, expensive cities in the world. It's, it's in many respects a taste making city you know, for the rest of the world um, and, and certainly the, the startup ecosystem around the world certainly looks to this place as a, as a trendsetter and we know San Francisco residents would die if the coffee supply was stopped for a single day. Like, literally, they'd kill over and die. So I'm told. Um, but how, how are you keeping the lights on? Is this company cash flow positive? Are you profitable at this point? How big is your team? How are you covering overhead? What are your existential concerns right now as, as a founder? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a good question. We started in New York, which is a big coffee city in itself. But San Francisco is in a class of its own in terms of sort of being a place to incubate a brand. Um, so San Franciscans love their coffee and they love good coffee. So a lot of the brands that we've seen go national that have actually created specialty brands came out of San Francisco or the West Coast. So it's a really perfect place for us to learn and be close to companies that are uh, you know, producing great coffee. Uh, so that's one part and so for us like I mentioned the first year um, has really been learning and experimentation and sort of playing in a 
smaller scale. And so we've been, you know, family and friends funded and also plowing in uh, profits back. So we've been profitable since day one with all our transactions. It's a cash business. So we sell, <laughs> we plow it back into the business. So it's been self-sustainable. Um, and I think we're at a point now where we want to get more financial muscle so that we can scale it and get the coffee into more hands. Yeah, let's hope... Um Let's hope people aren't too preoccupied with, you know, chasing hyperscale, hypergrowth to miss out on what's clearly a, a worthy business initiative. I can't imagine a more perfect founder for this business, given your background and your... Per- no, really, given your intimate understanding of the business, how close it is to, you know, to your upbringing and how it continues to be a part of your, le- your personal legacy. In a city like San Francisco, I think it's really easy for for people to sleep on opportunities like this. And then sadly, even on the African continent, there's there's a growing culture for us to look down our noses at good old-fashioned businesses that may not have this scalability potential of a Facebook, but certainly have sufficient value there to to justify investment. So from that standpoint, really, I just... I want to wish you well. The product looks incredible. Your branding is insane. I'm not a coffee person. I'm not a caffeine person generally. But I mean, I'm hearing incredible things from people who are coffee drinkers about your product. And I can't say any more except we hope this coffee becomes available everywhere, including all over the African continent very soon. Okay, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a wonderful um, sort of discussion. And I think when you were talking about it at the end, one thing I thought about that I didn't tell you was why this is so important for Africa is in East Africa, coffee is the main export crop out of East Africa. We can't have a bulk of the population working on a crop that's not paying them. It's dragging those economies. And I think if we can figure out a profitable way to have them participate in the economy, um, this will be a big game changer. It will create jobs for youth. If we have women actually not wasting their time (laughs) providing free labor, we can have these women, you know, be involved in more productive activities. So I'm so excited. Um, Definitely share the coffee with a friend. uh, And, you know, yeah, I look forward to having uh, more discussions. Absolutely, and cocoa tea, we come in. You next. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, definitely chocolate. I love chocolate, and I love tea because you know I'm a tea, I'm a tea girl growing up in Kenya. So tea is my next, definitely the next place I want to look into. African innovators awake, man. <laughs>